0: Let's turn to Romans chapter 14 and read some of the verses there. (coughs) We're almost at the end of this series on Romans, by the way. Um, I was planning to do two more uh, sessions, one on chapter 15, one on chapter 16, ain't going to happen because Christmas is going to get in the way, and so we decided that we need to do a little Christmas series as well before Christmas arrives, so the next time I'm here, which is in a couple of weeks' time, uh, end of the month, will be the last session on Romans, so I'm going to try and, and cover everything, but don't panic, but you won't be here all, all uh, week, and um, It'll be a normal length of talk, but I'm going to put some other resources up on the internet if you want to go a bit deeper into what we'll be saying that morning. Anyhow, that will be in a few weeks. Right now, we've got Romans chapter 14 to deal with. Let's read it. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the, the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains uh, does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead. And the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down at your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Mm. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who was in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer wanting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God. It is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that will cause your brother to fall so whatever you believe about these things keep between yourself and god blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves but the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, it's a longish reading, but I want to carry on a little bit longer uh, into up to verse 6 of chapter 15, because that's really where this bit of Paul's writing ends. We who are strong, he says, ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end of the reading. And just before we start looking at it, Um, we need to apologise that we'll not be with you for lunch today. I'm sorry about that. And, in fact, we won't be hanging around for long after the service. It's not because you've offended us or anything. It's just because by 1.40, I have to be back in Exeter jumping on a bus to go to Bristol Airport. Um, I've uh, been asked to go and uh, do some stuff in a Bible school in Germany for the next week. And uh, uh, the, the, the elders very graciously, some weeks ago, said that's okay, you skip the evening service, we'll let you go. So we'll be out of here uh, fairly fast at the end of the service and uh, uh, I'm sorry about that. But um, I'd value your prayers actually for this next week. I'll be right down on the shores of Lake Constance in the mist and fog. And uh, there's about 70, 80 students there. Um, who I'll I'll be teaching Ecclesiastes and Lamentations to. It's going to be an interesting journey. Uh, I fly from Bristol just after five o'clock, go to Amsterdam, then on to Stuttgart, and about three hours in Stuttgart waiting for a train at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I'll get to uh, the place I'm going to about six o'clock They'll peel me off the train and I'll be lecturing by 10. <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting night and uh, I'd value your prayers for it. Anyhow, let's forget that for the moment and just look at uh, where we've been. Last week we were looking at Romans chapter 13. You oh, know, we're looking at 14, so it must have been 13 last week. But we're looking at a whole section in which Paul is looking at what he said right through the book of romans which it's taken us a year to get through and at the end of it he says right this is how you ought to live if these things are true and we saw that uh, this section goes from chapter 12 to chapter 16 chapter 12 we looked at a few weeks ago and it talks about the key principles that we need to bear in mind if we're going to live the romans kind of a way Uh, keep on offering your body as a living sacrifice Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, using your spiritual gifts, gifts, loving, accepting and forgiving one another. And so those are the basic principles. And then he starts talking in chapter 13, as we saw last time, about how you live that out in society. This week, he talks about how to live it out in the church, and that's chapter 14. And then 15 just puts the whole picture together and says, look, this is really God's vision for everything, living in complete harmony and bringing glory to God, as we saw at the end of the last few verses we read there. In chapter 16, he talks about lots of people, um, over 27 of them personally he sends greetings to, and uh, uh, they are, tend to be brilliant people, people who have done amazing things for the Christian faith, people that other Christians ought to look at and learn from, but he also mentions some dangerous people as well that it's best to avoid. And those are summing up. The, the, the message of Romans. But we'll see that next time. So, last week in Romans 13, we looked at three things. First of all, we talked about a duty you can't avoid. Second, we talked about a debt that you will never, ever, however much you try, pay off. And third, we talked about a date that you can't forget if you're going to live a criven life. What were those three things? Well, the duty you can't avoid was simply being a good citizen. Not standing out against the government, not ridiculing powers and authorities, not withholding taxes, but doing all the things in society that make you the kind of upholder of the people that God has put in charge that you need to be. Now we said last week too, that doesn't mean you just blindly do whatever the Prime Minister, whoever it happened to be this week, um, says you've got to do. It means that you, you, you obey God first and foremost, because that's where your, lo- your loyalty really lies. But those other people who have authority over your lives and are making decisions are put there by him. So as long as what they are saying doesn't disagree with what God is saying, you follow them. If they start being completely um, un-Christian in the the way that you approach life and saying things that go right against what your conscience tells you that God uh, wants you to do, then you start uh, working out where your loyalties lie. So that was that one. Then we talked about a debt that you can't pay off, and that debt is the debt to love one another. We owe one another more love than we can possibly pay out in one lunchtime. And so we keep on doing it. We never say, this is enough, I've had it with her, he's too high maintenance, I'm here. You can't say that. The debt of love is one you never finish paying. When you love others, it says in Romans 13 verse 8, in the message version, you complete what the law has been after all along. This is what God has always wanted. And that's why all those laws are there in the Old Testament. He's pushing us towards a situation in which we'll live in perfect harmony with one another and love one another the way we should. Then there was a date you can't forget, and you remember that was about the verse that says, Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And Paul is saying, Look, these things are urgent because every day you live, you're closer to the day when you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you'll be responsible for the way that you've lived in the meantime. So the way you behave in society has got to reflect all of these things. So we've talked about living it out in society. As I said, now, this week, we're talking about living it out in the church. Because in the church, there will be some difficult questions to solve sometimes. Not everything in the Bible is down there in in, in explicit terms. The way you to behave isn't always spelled out. On the key things, the important things, the things we all have to agree about, yes, it is. But God isn't some kind of puppet master who gives you strict instructions about everything you've got to do in your life, whether there's a Christian way of doing it, and there's a non-Christian way of doing it, and you must do his way, or else you're sunk. It's not that way. He leaves us with minds of our own to make decisions, to make choices by ourselves. And, and, and sometimes, on those issues, we're going to disagree. Sometimes people will disagree about the importance of various... And one of the things that was going on in Rome at that point was Food. <laughs> What kind of food do you actually eat? Especially, what kind of meat is it okay to eat? There were lots of people in the church in Rome who'd become Christians from a pagan background. And they had just been used to eating anything they wanted, really, right through their lives. On the other hand, there were people who were Jews. And those Jews had just returned to Rome, as we said last week. And they'd come back to find that the Gentiles were now in charge of the church and it was a lot less Jewish than they were used to. And so they weren't always... Happy with the free and easy customs that the Gentile Christians had. And because they had always done certain things certain ways, they weren't sure how they ought to fit in. And food was a big problem. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of dietary laws about the kind of things you can eat and the kind of things you can't eat and when you can eat them and whether there's blood with them and all that sort of stuff. And so Jews had been used to navigating this incredible system of laws. And then when they got back to Rome, it was a bit dodgy. I mean, they went to feasts with Christian Gentiles and found that those Gentiles would eat almost anything, and they'd offer some to the Jews, and the Jews were, uh, "Where has it been? Am I allowed to eat this?" According to the law?" Now, it's not that they believed the law was going to save them. They were Christians. They knew very well that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. But they did feel more comfortable keeping to their own own habits and the ways that they'd always lived their lives, the way their granddads and their great great grandads had behaved right down through centuries. They didn't want to change that all overnight. And then when they went out to buy food for themselves in the market, that was a problem too. You see, in the old days, before the Jews had been expelled from Rome, there were special Jewish quarters in the market where you could buy meat, which was not only good to eat, but it had been slaughtered in the, in the proper way as well. Because just like Muslims today in Britain, uh, who will only eat halal meat, Jews were very particular about the way the animal was killed. And so, when they went to the market now, they found the old Jewish quarter had disappeared because all the Jews had been expelled a few years before. And you could go to a, a butcher shop and say, yeah, 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 this is all right, lady. Yeah, you can eat this. No problems with your law. And you think, you're just a Gentile. What do you know about our law? And so many Jews were just eating vegetables. And the end result of that, of course was that other people were looking down on them. And Gentiles who would eat anything think, oh, these poor hidebound people, they're still clinging on to the past. They're traditionalists. they are people who only go to church with, with hats on, wearing Sunday suits. They're people who will not, not uh, buy an ice cream on a Sunday. Oh, dear me, they're stuck in the past. They're hidebound. And so they were falling out with one another. Now, you might think, this all sounds familiar, this argument about food. Isn't there another place in the New Testament where Eating meat gets talked about. And you're right. Paul had written a letter right, about four years before, 1 Corinthians, in which the same problem was going on. But the interesting thing is, he talks here about the weak and the strong in, first, uh, in, in Romans chapter 13. And the weak people are the traditionalists. The people who want to hang on to the past. The strong people, because you say, oh, any food is all right. You know, God's freed us from, from fear of all kinds of things. And here... Um, it's, it's, it's different from Corinthians. You see, the issue in 1 Corinthians was meat that was offered in a temple. Some Christians would buy meat in the market which had previously been offered to an idol in a temple. Now, that seems a bit weird because the idol never ate it. but That's what used to happen. <laughs> Uh, the, the closest equivalent I've ever come across in my life is what the Hare Krishna group used to do. Do you remember the Hare Krishnas? The people who wore orange went, Hare Krishna, 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 and all sorts of stuff. Um, they uh, believed in worshipping the idols in the temple by putting food in front of them every day. The idols never ate their food. In fact, there was great excitement once, and they all get into all the newspapers, when uh, the elephant god Ganesh seemed to have drunk some milk. But it didn't really happen. It was just all made up. But uh, they had this stuff called prasadam, which was sacred food. And I remember when I was a student going to a meeting in Oxford Town Hall run by the Hare Krishnas and they were explaining all about what they believed and so on. And at one point in the evening, they sent round everybody in the whole of the town hall bowls of prasadam. And I could see this thing coming across the road to I could Think about the New Testament. What am I supposed to do here? Do I eat this food or do I not? Actually, I had some. It's a bit salty crackers, but anyhow. Um, and uh, that's the only time I've ever eaten meat offered to idols because I knew it had been offered to the idols in the temple. Now, in Rome, in Corinth, rather, there were some Christians who do not touch that stuff because they said, it's been in the temple of an, an alien god we have become christians we've come away from that whole culture we don't how to do anything that takes us back in there it's probably satanic demonic food we can't eat that stuff that would be like going back to the past that we came from whereas in corinth lots of jewish people say ah relax <laughs> you know those those uh, gods are not real anyway so you can eat what you like can't you and they no 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 we can't eat meat offered to so you see the, the, that was the issue for them As we've just seen, though, the issue for the people in Rome was different. It was about meat that you bought in the marketplace. Or meat that was offered to you at a love feast, uh, a Christian party, by Gentiles. Was it safe to eat? And so the Jews were not sure about this, and they would just eat vegetables. So you see how it differs. Who are the weak and who are the strong? In 1 Corinthians 8, the weak were mainly Gentiles. People who'd been brought up to believe in the pagan gods and to go to the temple. And they couldn't shake off their feeling. Oh, it's wrong to eat this stuff because we've come right away from this. And the strong, well, they were mainly Jews. They were people who'd never been involved in the temple and, uh, you know, didn't think that um, these idols had any reality behind them. Uh, in Rome, it was the other way around. The weak were mainly Jews. <laughs> wanted to hang on to the regulations from the Old Testament. And the strong, well, they were mainly Gentiles. People who ah well, you know, we've never kept those laws anyway, and now we become Christians, we don't even have to bother, it's brilliant. And so you see, in some situations, you can be strong, in other situations, you can be one of the weak ones. And I think what this says to us is, there's an awful lot that depends on the way we've been brought up, and our past experiences, and the way our memories shape our minds. Because your identity is not simply based on the Bible, it's based on the way that you've been brought up, and the family you come from, and all sorts of other things as well. And there can be hangovers from those things, which are okay, but they conflict with the hangovers in other people's lives. And you look at one another and think, why does he do it that way? Why does she do it that way? It's dumb, it's stupid. I've never done it like that. And uh, it's funny how we can be the prisoners of our memories. This guy was in the papers quite a bit yesterday for some reason. He was picked up by most of the tabloids. Uh, his name is Mo Hunter. He lives in a village just outside um, Hereford. And uh, he had a bad experience a couple of years ago when he had a viral meningitis that threatened to kill him. And he had urgent surgery. And uh, in the end, he was sorted out. But one thing he's discovered since then is that his life has completely changed. Why? Why? Well, before this point, before he had his his life-changing illness, um, he was a Burger King worker who had no particular talents and didn't do anything with his, his, his life. Now he's found he's got artistic skills. It started when he started making models from Star Wars and other movies like that, and he found he was incredibly skillful at it. And the producers of the film started getting in touch with him and offering him props from the original movies to see what he could do with them. And now he's built his own carpentry business out of that. And it's all creative designs, because that's what he's good at. Here's the uh, front page, uh, the, the page from the mirror where his story appeared yesterday. Man wakes from coma with incredible new art skills he never had before brush with death. And it's interesting because somehow his, lots of his memories have been ripped out. He cannot remember anything that happened to him before 2004. We don't know why. But he's been told about that bit of his life and he believes it. It just doesn't hang over his brain anymore. And so somehow something has been released in him which was there all along but was kept back by the kind of person he thought himself to be. And he's changed completely. His whole life has changed. He's been asked to write film script and build all of the stuff to go along with it as well, a science fiction film. And uh, you know, it's, it's just altered completely because his memories have let go of him. But for most of us, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and I'm not wishing meningitis on anybody this morning. <laughs> may you stick with your memories, but may your memories not control you in a way that—it's a barrier between you and other Christians. Why does he talk about weak people and strong people? Well. First of all, this idea about weak and strong seems to be a common term that was used in Rome in those days for people who held on to tradition and people who didn't hold on to tradition. For example, the poet Horace writes a poem, one of his epodes, in which he talks about going through the street with a really annoying person who will not let go of him. And he meets another friend and tries to talk, talk to this friend so then guy will just take the hint and go away. And the other friend sees what's going on. No, yeah, no, 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 you just stick with him. And, and so uh, this kind of thing happens. Uh, wasn't there something you needed to say to me in private? He says to the new guy who's just appeared. Oh, yes, I remember. I'll tell you at some more convenient time. It's the 30th, Sabbath. did you want to offend the circumcised Jews. And uh, he's saying, I'll talk to you some other time about that. You know, uh, we defend the Jews by talking today because they're all, you know, it's their Sabbath. And so we can't have this conversation. Just you carry on with this boring person that you're already with. And uh, so Horace, in desperation, is nothing sacred to me. It's not my Sabbath. It doesn't matter. It is to me. I'm one of the many. Some weaker. Pardon, another day. And so he goes off and leaves Horace with this boring person he's stuck with. And you, you see the way he uses the word weak. that was a common way of using that word in Rome, apparently. Somebody who was a traditionalist, somebody who had hung on to ideas from the past, he was called weak. So that's, that's the reason Paul uses the word weaker. It was common in Rome in those days. It's not that he's saying the, the Romans, the, the, the Jewish people, are weaker Christians than others. They're just weak in one particular area. And uh, he makes that clear, doesn't he, right from the start of chapter 14, where he says, accept him whose faith is weak, or as for the one who is weak, in faith. And this is the thing. Faith is something you can have a lot of or a little bit of. (laughs) Faith is a funny word in the New Testament. Uh, There are two ways in which it's used. Well, there's more than two, but these are the main ones. One is... In the sense of something that we all need. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you have no faith, you can't be a Christian. You can't know God for yourself. It takes just a tiny little amount of faith. Enough to say to Jesus, I don't know if this is right or not, but I, I believe you're there and I believe you're going to change my life, so come into it right now. If you've got that much faith, just a tiny little bit, that's all you need to become a Christian, but you must have that. However... Did you notice when Steve was talking about those verses earlier on, there was one from 1 Corinthians 13 that was talking about spiritual gifts. It talks about speaking in tongues. It talks about um, uh, 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 the gift of prophecy. And third, it says, if I have the kind of faith that would move mountains. That's the, the other meaning of faith. It's a gift that some Christians have got and not all We all have different amounts of faith, and to some people, a lot of faith is given as a gift. They are the people who go out and found missions in hostile countries. They are the people who smuggle Bibles into into places they're not supposed to go. They are the people who have the vision to start great ministries and missions and hospitals and charities and all sorts of things like that. Some people have got the kind of faith to go out and do massive things without any financial backing whatsoever because they just believe, and they really believe, that God will provide. Other people don't have that much faith. And so you can be weak in faith and still be a Christian. <laughs> you can be strong in love. You can be strong in your grasp of the scriptures. You can be strong in all sorts of areas. But sometimes you'll find Christians who are weak in faith. And their memories and past hangs on to them in a way that doesn't help them. So this is what Paul's speaking about. This, by the way, is a picture of an agape, a love feast. Uh, From the days of the early church for the first 600 years of the church's existence They had these feasts where people would get together just as you are going to do at lunchtime And a church would come together share food together and it would be brilliant The problem comes obviously when you've got different ideas about the kind of food you could eat So how does this chapter divide up? Let's just have a look at this before uh, we take 10 minutes to look at it First of all verses 1 to 4 talk about the problem this whole difficulty of the weak and the strong not getting on too well with one another. Verses 5 to 12 is where he turns around and talks to the weak people and says, Look, this is what you need to do. And from verse 13, he turns around the other way and talks to the strong people and says, Look, this is what you need to do. And finally, uh, as we saw at the start of uh, chapter 15, he says something that applies to everybody and says, This is what you all need to do. So, how about the problem? This is verses 1 to 4. Emperor Claudius, for this is he, well it's not, it's Derek Jacobi. and if you ever get a chance to see the old videos of I, Claudius, and if you remember those, you're as old as I am, but uh, there's a pretty good series based on the novels by Robert Graves, you you remember that uh, Claudius was a pretty good Roman emperor whom everybody looked down on. The Senate despised him. He only became uh, emperor by a, a real kind of accident. One emperor was killed and suddenly the only member of the royal family left was this guy who stuttered and was therefore thought to be a bit of an idiot and uh, who was mild and and gracious to everybody and therefore was thought to be not very forceful. And Claudius became emperor and he actually did some very, very good things through his years as emperor. Poisoned eventually by his wife, as I mentioned last week. But before he died, one of the things he'd done was to say we need to stop some of these arguments going on. And one of the things he didn't like in AD 14 was the fact that the Jews in Rome were always having riots and demonstrations. So he said, right, there's a simple answer to that. Get rid of them all. Push them all out. And so they went off to other cities. They had to. They weren't allowed within Rome's city limits any longer. That's when the Jewish butchers gave up selling food in the market and went off to Corinth or Athens or somewhere like that. And so Claudius just got rid of the Jews at a sweep. But as we said last week, three years before Paul wrote Romans, Claudius died. And so the Jews started trickling back. They weren't sure if they were allowed to or not, but nobody stopped them. So they were coming back into Rome and starting to take up residence there again. Now, if you're in that situation and you're coming back in and you find these Gentiles are taken over your church and they're eating all sorts of dodgy stuff that you don't think is allowed by the law, what do you do? Well, Paul says four things to them. He says, first of all, don't be unwelcoming. Um, um, the people who are weak in the faith must be received by the others. Uh, you've got to accept one another. And the word uh, it's, uh, for receive in verse, accept him whose faith is weak, that means welcome, bring them in. No questions asked. Accept them in the name of the Lord because they belong to him, not to you. Second, don't get into arguments. Accept his faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One faith allows him to eat everything, but another man eats only vegetables. Uh, Don't dispute about things that are not too important. Focus on the big things, the things that draw you together. Because often it's over the smallest things that churches divide. David Lloyd George when he was Prime Minister of Great Britain. I don't think he was ever a Christian, really, although he was always fascinated with Christianity, he used to go to a church every Sunday morning. He said at one point, the church I belong to is a small church, and there's another church just like it. The difference between us is is, is very small, because we we believe most of the same things, but in one denomination, you are baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the other denomination, you're baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. He says that difference is important. I would fight for it. I would die for it. I would defend it with my life. He said, the only problem is I can never remember which one I want to. And sometimes it's those tiny things, isn't it? It's small things that divide Christians, and they become massive, massive problems. One of the things I used to do when I was doing training courses for youth workers was say, let's do a, play a really silly game. Divide into twos. I want uh, the one of you whose birthday is closest to the 1st of January to uh, tell the other for three minutes why yellow is better than blue. Red is better than green, or what people look at you and That's a stupid idea. And then after three minutes, you switch them around and get the, the discussion going the other way, where the other person says, Right, you've got three minutes to tell why green is better than red, or whatever. And it was always the same. When it started off, you took people thinking, This is stupid, I don't really want to do this. And the conversation be very, very low and hesitant, and tentative and nobody was saying much. And then somebody would say something that made the other person think, That's outrageous. Or else, no, that's a great idea. I didn't think of that. And what you immediately think is, I've got to say something even better back. And so you end up doing this. And you have a real ding-dong. At the end of three minutes, you find people are at one another's throats. No, I tell you, yellow is better than blue. No, blue is better than yellow. And they are really wound up about something that didn't matter to them at all three minutes before. So easily happens, doesn't it? Don't get into arguments, says Paul don't despise or write off a brother because that's another thing that happens isn't it when you see people eating food that you think is 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 wrong then the chances are you're gonna eh, he's not really a christian anyway or when you see people uh uh saying no thank you i'll just have vegetables and you think, what what's wrong with this perfect good steak here then you're going to despise them as well if you're not careful and it's easy to write people off, which is one of the words that Paul uses here. Don't write off your brother. My father used to be an evangelist in prisons in Scotland, and uh, he had enormous success in leading lads who had nothing going for them life to become Christians in jail. And when they went out, obviously, they had to be put into the care of churches to be looked after. And he'd send them out to some churches and they'd be well looked after. But there were others where he'd ring up in a couple of weeks and say, how are you getting on with that lad I sent to you? And would say, oh, Alec, uh, he was never a Christian. You know, he still smokes. I had him swear the other night, no, the grace of God has not touched his life, I'm sorry. And it's such a shame. You know, people just pick on the smallest things. Rather than seeing the spark of new life that needs to be nurtured into flame, just because they pick on the small things and they use that as a basis for writing people off. And the fourth thing is, don't judge someone else's servant. That's verse 4, where he says, listen, uh, you are the servant of God. And so is your brother as well. Sorry, you are, yeah. And uh, uh, you mustn't judge somebody else's servant. Now, if you look at the names in Romans 16 of the people that Paul is greeting, many of them are slave names. Clearly, some of those people in the room were slaves or they'd been freed slaves. Uh, they'd gone through a period of slavery in their lives. And when Paul says this, don't judge somebody else's servant, they knew what it was like to be bossed around by one of your master's friends. And if you didn't like being a slave, if you didn't like your master bossing around all the time, it was absolutely intolerable when one of his friends would say, "Here, slave, come and do this for me and do that. And be quick about it. You know, because... What right have they got over your life? Okay, you're a slave, but you're not his slave. And so Paul's using a picture here that they would really understand. So don't judge somebody else as if you're in control of their lives. they are not, they're the servants of God, not your servant. What do the weak need to do? Well, this is what he says in, 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 in verses 5 to 12. And he talks about the way that the weak need to respond to the treatment they get from the strong. And the basic lesson here, I think, is be generous. Not judgmental. <laughs> don't judge other people because they don't have the same standards that you do. The church I go to, uh, where I have to preach my the authorized version, of the old King James Bible, every time which gets more and more difficult the further away from it I get, you know. I used to know all of my Bible verses in the authorised version, but using other versions over the years, I've forgotten the exact wording, and the exact wording's often not very good anyway, and doesn't make much sense today. And uh, to uh, to, to go and preach in this place is quite difficult. In fact, I remember saying, OK, right, first time I'm going to preach here, let's get the authorised version off the shelf. What is it? It was up in the loft <laughs> for years. And I had to blow the dust off this thing and go and preach. Well, that's, that's okay. But I could go there and say, you know, you're using an inferior version hundreds of years ago. We have much better manuscripts now and we have translations which are much better in English and this is what you should be reading. Now, if that's where they've got to, if they're happy with the King James Bible, that's fine. All right, let them have it. Be generous, not judgmental. And there are all sorts of other things like that. He's doing something on a Sunday that I would never do. Okay, fair enough. Does he belong to the Lord? Is he the Lord's servant rather than yours? Be generous in your judgment of people and don't just judge them. And he says three things here. First of all, follow your convictions. If you're one of the weak ones, if you're one of those that wants to hang on to traditions from the past, do it because you're persuaded it's right. Don't do it for fear of other people. Let everyone be persuaded in his own mind, says Paul. And if one of your brothers is persuaded that it's okay to go to a football match on a Sunday afternoon, and if you are persuaded it's wrong to go to a football match under any circumstances whatsoever, and much of the day is the work of the devil, that's fine. That's okay. Just be persuaded in your own mind. Follow your own convictions. Don't be pushed by anybody else in something you don't believe. And whatever you do, do it to honor the Lord. So that if you're eating vegetables, you do it okay. Thank you, God, for providing these vegetables. Your brother next to you might be saying, thank you, God, for providing this fine steak. And that's okay. Honor your Lord. That's the whole point of what you do. And third, remember your responsibility. Remember that you're responsible to God whether you're alive or dead because he, your life is just bound up with him all the way through now. And therefore, there is no decision that you take that's exempt from his judgment, from his overseeing. So remember that you're living your life for him and you're responsible to make your choices, not just because it's what everybody else does, but because it's what's right. Okay, so that's what we need to do. How about the strong? This is verses 13 to 25. I think the big phrase for the strong is this. Be diplomatic. Don't be destructive. Do not destroy your brother, it says, for whom Christ died. Understand that some people are not as liberated as you are, and so allow them to be where they are. Don't stumble, your brother. Don't cause any cause of offence. Saying, yeah, this is what I do, look, I have a, a whole cellar full of fine wines here, alcohol, no, no, you can't touch it, yes, yes, let me give you a quick drink, just one drink, come on, don't do that. Don't cause your brother to go against his or her convictions. Second, don't provoke them. Don't deliberately start a fight with them. You know what you believe is stupid, it's out of the ark. it's staffed, and it's going to stop other people becoming Christians because you're still you know, covered in medieval cobwebs, it's all wrong. Don't do that. Don't provoke your brother so that you start a bitter war between the two. And so many wars in the Christian church are starting that way. Don't obsess. Don't be fascinated with the tiny little details rather than the big issues. This is why he says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. I know what it's about. What's about his righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is centred on. So don't miss the big things because you're focusing on the small things. I remember back in 1973, a century ago, uh, writing a, a, a series of articles. I was very young at this point. I'd done some work on Bible prophecy. And I was asked by a Christian magazine to write a series called The Buzz uh, Guide to Prophecy. And so I tried to sort out uh, the different schools of prophecy that there were, you know, the different uh, views of dispensations and things like that, the premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, all kinds of different stuff. And I wrote what I thought was a pretty balanced series of articles. Actually, I still think it was pretty balanced, because I got hate mail from everybody. (laughs) Every side! And, and, you know, people who knew the Bible far better than I did were sending me cassettes and tapes and lectures and documents and all sorts of things. Good job the internet wasn't around. I had a million links as well. And, and, and what struck me as a fairly Christian in those days was just how much hatred there was and how much these people who had a real knowledge of Scripture were obsessed with the tiniest little details. It wasn't the big issues. I mean, if all of this stuff is true, it's a wonderful hope that we have. We're going to a fantastic place. That's what we used to be focusing on, the big vision, the big picture. But no, 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 does the, does the, uh, uh, do we, are we raptured at the start of the tribulation or midway through it or in different batches or at the end of the church? You know, and you can, you can obsess about these tiny little things and use them as a way of cutting yourself off from other Christians. That's what Paul's talking about. Finally, finally, we get to chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. Uh, what is he saying here? He's saying, first of all, what we all need to do is work to build up our neighbour. What we do in the church should make our neighbours, our the other Christians that we rub shoulders with, better Christians. Let's build up one another. And whatever we do, whatever we say, however we communicate with one another, let's do it with a view to building up that other person and making them stronger and better as Christians. And, you know, Paul also says, Jesus didn't please himself, so copy Jesus. Not everything you do should just reflect what you want to do. But what's good for your brother? If you look at how Jesus allowed his, his three years of ministry to take him into places he would never have chosen physically, humanly for himself, going without food, having nowhere to sleep at night, being pushed around, in the end arrested and crucified when he was completely innocent of what he was being charged of—all of those things he went through because he pleased not himself. He wanted other people to be blessed through the way he poured out the love of God in the way he lived. And if he's our example, if he's our leader, if he's our king, that's the way we've got to be too. And finally, he says, grow in stamina and hope. (laughs) If you look at the promises of scripture, if you apply them to your life, what happens is you grow in endurance, he says, you're able to take life an awful lot better. And your view of your hope becomes bigger and bigger as time goes by. And so if you live out these challenges that scripture gives you to to be at one with one another, to live in harmony, then you're going to last much better as a Christian. And your hope is going to grow. As you see Jesus formed in the lives of other people around you, in your church, in your fellowship, you are going to see, wow, this is what he wants to do with me as well. And this is what he's leading us all to. And you get a vision of the total harmony, the coming back together, the reconciliation of all creation that the gospel is really about. So the, the chapter ends like this, and I can't better these words, so I'm just going to quote them, and then Steve's going to come back with the last song. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus has, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Steve.